Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, hello, episode 241. We're recording this live on April 14th, 2022. This is Human Factors Cast. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Good evening. How are you? I'm well. You have a new title, Barry. <laughs> I do. It's very exciting. I'm delighted to say that I'm now the president-elect of the Charity Institute of Economics and Human Factors. And now I, I should have my own something now at the start of every show. Yeah, you should. Um, you're like <laughs> King Barry Kirby, Sir Barry Kirby. What is, is there an official president-elect? President-elect, yes. Barry Kirby. Anyway, we got we got a great show. Not to glance over your achievements, Barry. Congratulations. <laughs> We've got a great show for you tonight. We're actually going to be talking about how jetpacks might be used in the near future to save people's lives. And later, we're going to answer some questions from the community about how to push back on developer suggestions, advice for conducting asynchronous activities, and red flags when considering research turnaround time. But first, some programming notes. Um Hey, if you haven't already, we have put out that HFVS Town Hall. This is the first official episode since we've put that out. Uh, we sat down. We had a conversation with HFES leadership. We were talking about uh, all that fun stuff over HFES, especially around outreach. You should go check it out if you haven't already. And, Barry, I understand that you uh, have some stuff going on at 1202, the Human Factors podcast. What's going on over there? Yeah, so twelve or two. I think the last time we were going to have, um, have this discussion, we just put out an episode around fire. This time we're looking at agriculture, and we just recorded an interview with John Owen, who's basically is the research project manager at, at Gethlyaya, which is a farm campus of a further education college here in Wales called Colic Cigar. He was good enough to basically give me a bit of an insight about how they use an IoT and technology, sensor technologies in particular about how to give farmers uh, a bit of an edge into decision-making. And then it gives you know, a bit of background into the sort of decisions they need to make around weather and all that sort of stuff. So that's going to go live on Monday. And then you talk about HFES leadership. Next week, I'm recording a, a, um, an episode with none other than Chris himself, Chris Reed. So Ooh. hopefully if that all happens and, and goes ahead, then um, I'll be able to give you a bit of an insight from this side of the pond about what we think about HFES. Is Chris the only person that we've both had on our podcast? As it well, Tony, we both had Tony, Tony on. Yeah, Tony. Um, yeah. Yes, I think so far. There might be some other. But we'll change we'll all. Yes, we will. Uh, one more update here. Uh, we we are always uh, taking excited volunteers for our Human Factors Cast Digital Media Lab. We got a lot of really fun stuff going on over there. In fact, we just done a whole update on our lab infrastructure uh, to make sure that that transition for volunteers is a good onboarding process. If you are interested in helping communicate human factors, if you're interested in creating content that will help others digest human factors psychology uh, in a way that is effectively communicated, I encourage you to reach out to us. Uh, we are always looking for folks, but we know why you're here. You are here for the news. So why don't we go ahead and get into it? You know, I understand that people skip parts of the show. That intro is usually what people skip. So we're we're looking for people for the lab. I'm going to say it one more time just after that break. Anyway, we know why you're here. You're here for the news. Barry, what is the news story this week? The news story this week is amazing. We're talking about jet suit paramedics ready for a summer liftoff. Really what we're going to hear is paramedics in the Lake District here in the United Kingdom hope to be using jet suits 
to reach medical emergencies this summer. Currently, they use helicopters that take around 25 to 30 minutes to reach a patient in the Lake District. Once the crew has found an area flat enough to land. Once this program is operational, the jetpack operation, medics will be able to fly up, up a hill in 90 seconds rather than taking that 30 minutes by foot that it takes to get there. The jet suit consists of two mini engines, one on, e on, on each arm and one on the back, allowing the pilot to control their movement just by moving their just by moving their hands. We've all seen Iron Man. It can ascend quickly, saving valuable time by flying close to the land. There is a major advantage for using this technology in the Lake District as the jet suit can be used in poor conditions, such as low visibility and strong winds, which would pose a challenge to a helicopter. And anybody who's been to the Lake, Lake District know that low, low visibility and strong winds are very common. The suits have also been proved to be effective in 35 mile an hour winds and, according to the data, could be used on 15 to 20 medical cases a week. Paramedics will need to fly with around 10 to 15 kilos or 20 to 35 pounds of medical kit, including a defibrillator, patient monitoring devices, which are strapped into pouches on the pilot's legs and chest. The idea is to get paramedics to patients in emergency care faster than ever, which could mean more people survive if, than, than expected if they normally had a, a longer response time. So Nick, do, would you like to have the equivalent of a paramedic Ironman come into a Coming to save you in the in the in the Lake District. Look, uh, so let me first preface this by saying we, you and I, Barry, talked a lot last week on our Human Factors and Chill Human Factors Hangout uh, about jetpacks. Um, in fact, that's why we repackaged that as a separate podcast episode because there was so much good discussion there about the human factors issues surrounding jetpacks, and we'll get to some of it today. Um, so I want to preface it with that, but on the surface. This is an awesome premise, but as we kind of discovered last week, um, you know, there's a lot of hoops that we need to jump through to get to the benefits that something like this could provide. Um, like I said, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I am curious on what your initial thoughts on this are. So, yeah, the we did go through um, a whole lot of stuff last week that I think is a whole two hours worth of content there, which was really good fun. But the Fundamentally, with this, it feels on the on on one hand part of me that feels very excited about we're playing with this sort of technology now, and it makes it. Um, I mean, I made a couple of references to Iron You watch things on the movies where they've done that sort of thing. It makes it. It's, it this technology is becoming accessible, um, but it also does feel like it's a bit of a fad. Like it's a. Is it more risky than actually useful? Um, do you you know? I think we need to step through a whole lot of the issues to work out, is this something that is actually truly going to save lives? Um, or do you know, even take a step back, is it going to make life easier for people? Um, or is it just going to look cool? Because um, who doesn't want to be a rocket man? Um, yeah. But um, I'm not, part of me in, you know, my heart loves it. My head thinks this is, it's not as cool as it could be. I think, I think we're on the same page there. Um, and let's, Let's paint the picture for our listeners here. Uh, this is an audio format podcast. So you actually have experience living in the Lake District, and it has some very unique properties. Can you just briefly describe what makes the Lake District unique and why they're trying this technology there? Right. Let's go with wet first. The The, the Lake District is a very wet place. So the, the whole, the Lake District is north of England. Um, so if you look at a map, it's basically the, um, the north uh, west of England, just below Scot below the Scottish border, if you're in large handfuls. So it's in, in Cumbria. 
and it's a glaciated uh, terrain, which means that through the ice age, when when the glaciers moved through um, that that um, that part of the country, it created a rather unique um, uh, terrain, which is good. So it's got lots of hills on it, very um, very rugged terrain in that respect. It's in some respects it's got some quite rolling hills, but then it's also got some some quite sharp rock formations. Um, it, it, parts of it are very open and very barren, so that means that your the wind. Um, it's quite significant that when it truly gets into raining, rain horizontal rain is is, is quite quite well seen. Um, but then, you know, almost in the same day, you could have that all that the um, the rain roll back, the clouds roll back, and you get beautiful sunshine and you know fantastic scenery. Where a lot of people, so it's a, it's a heavy tourist destination. Um, and so what makes it quite popular um, for why they have the mountain rescue teams there is people will often go walking thinking, you know, it's a beautiful day, um, sling on a, a little backpack with maybe a bottle of water and, 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 and a chocolate bar and go wandering up the hill because why not? It's a beautiful day. You can crack on and do that. But then they can get about halfway up, and suddenly again the clouds come back down. You lose what you lose where you're going, um, so you, you lose orientation. You you don't you don't have the right clothes with you, so you get wet through. You get cold. Hypothermia is very very common, um, and so just because that changing nature of the weather combined with the um, with, with with that terrain makes it a very unique place to be um the number so that you have normal mountain rescue teams that go out that are all volunteer organizations that'll go out if, if the if you get um a casualty on a hill or even somebody's just in distress the mountain rescue team will be the first ones on call to go out there and they're normally just walkers themselves you know that they'll have special kit and um, perhaps a, a land rover that type of thing they'll go out and find casualties but then if the casualty is severely injured enough then you get the um the helimed come out, the helicopter medical team come out, and then we'll airlift casualties off. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an insight into um, one of the areas of the UK that I actually consider to be the most beautiful part of um, part of the UK, but it can also be the most treacherous. Right. So, so painting that picture really kind of illustrates why they're testing this there. There's a lot of really unique geological features that makes it difficult to, for search and rescue medical teams to get to folks who might be in precarious uh, conditions. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about, since we're talking about the physical side of things, let's talk about the physical features of what a jackpack is, kind of rehash some of our conversation of last week, um, some of the human factors issues with human factors and and jetpacks in general. Um so just to kind of briefly describe this system, again, I know it was in the blurb, but you have sort of uh, a jet on each wrist, jets at each wrist uh, that help you control directionality. And then you have sort of one on your back that presumably controls thrust, upward thrust. Uh, and so you're able to, when you kind of move your body in certain ways, move forward, move backwards. You're right. We have all seen Iron Man. We kind of get the gist of how that might work. We saw him learning, crash on the car robot you know gets him with the fire extinguisher all that stuff that's kind of what's going on here but without the the comedy um and really we're looking at kind of training in various stages where you have uh sort of this tethered state where you're kind of on a stage you're tethered you're kind of learning to to control this and i'm talking from the paramedics perspective here you're learning to control this this um the suit 
And once you've learned that, then you kind of go into the smaller scale tests of getting off of that tether and doing short jumps from point A to point B. And then once that's, you know, once you've kind of mastered that, then you move on to the next stage, which ultimately leads you to being able to save people. And at some point along the way, you're going to have to, you know, test it with all this equipment on you, all this kit uh, that you have to carry the defibrillator, uh, the the medical supplies, all that stuff. Um, Barry, do you want to go through some of the usability issues of of jetpacks and what that could mean for these operators? Yeah, I mean, it's worth. So just to um, pick up on something you just said, if you obviously this story is being um, uh, un- supported by underpin uh, by gravity industries who would develop that the jetpack who've done that and if you go to their website they've got um some good videos and youtube links about the training process you have to go through so it's it's worth having a look at that to see how how you step through that but if we were to focus directly on on the task that is being used for here in terms of being a paramedic so for me the the, the flight there is is part of the story you know, so you, you imagine you're you're at your um, you, you're at the base. You get the call. So the helicopter uh, team would then, if they to to do a comparison, would then go and pre-flight checks. They would you know the suitor pre-flight checks and get into the air. <clears throat> now the the same is going to be the same for you in a suit. That um, you've got to do. You know, you've got to suit up. Presumably, you're not walking around with this on all the time because presumably it's weighty and uncomfortable. You probably need to fuel it up. Um, it has a, a, a limited fuel range. Um, though presumably that's going to get better. So as you've described, you have these thrusters on, uh, these jets on, so two jets on the, on each wrist and one on your back. That's right. So you've, you've got to suit up. You've got to go, take, get all this kit, make sure you, you've got it there. You've then got to, um, when you get to your casualty, you've then got to be able to perform medical tasks. You've then got to be able to do something. So the pictures that we've seen show that these jets actually go down quite low down your hand because you've got almost like a gauntlet on. So being able to then, um, you know, perform CPR, be able to dress a wound, be able to uh, do anything that you presumably have to take this sort of stuff off or stash it in some way. Um, So there's going to be a level of how do you do that? Because presumably it's, it's a jet, it's going to get hot. Um, How do you stop that, that the jet cowling touching you um, you know, because you, you don't want to burn your hands off trying to get this, trying to get this thing off, and more importantly, probably you don't want to burn the casualty, um, because if you've got that there, then that's so. Fundamentally, whilst it's if you get there quickly, but then you have to spend like half an hour taking this kit off and making it safe before you then perform uh, medical interventions. Are you doing any quicker? Don't know. I you probably presumably take it off fairly quickly. I would like to think and dump it yeah. at the side, but you know, you you get you get it there. Um, so yeah, you you need to be able to fly there. You need to be able to take it off, do stuff. Um, what is the range of it? So they, they've talked about being able to fly for around you know uphill in in ninety seconds, um, which is great. Um, you've got they talk about taking loads of kit with them as the, that we said in the blurb. So presumably you'll be able to get there, <clears throat> de- um, take the, the the thing off or make it safe or whatever that that means. Get the right sort of kit out and, and apply it. Um, but then I sort of then get, get into my uh, safety case stuff. And there's two big things that worry me to a certain extent. Firstly, what happens if it goes wrong? Um, or you forget how much fuel you've used because that, I should imagine that, you know, if you're in a helicopter or even in, in a plane, if you run out of fuel, you've got glide or you can auto-rotate or, or, or that type of thing. If you run out of fuel with 
wearing this suit and you're maybe you you know in the Lake District it's quite easy to be thinking that you're going quite low over the ground and then suddenly for a big um, valley to open up in front of you or a crevasse or you know that, that uh, uh, big rock formation if you suddenly run out of fuel whilst you're in that position um, you then turn into a very fast brick um, and there's a, there's a, there's only you've you've, won, you've got velocity so you're going to hit something hard um, but presumably again you I, I assume you, you're gonna we're gonna have cues, so you need some sort of cueing in the um, in some sort of either on your body or in ideally is it some sort of heads up display um, that you know what your range is, you know what your um, what any alerts that are going on, you know how 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 are you gonna know if there's a if there's an error in one of the thrusters and what impact that has on what on what you're doing. Um, so how all that all that gets managed in a way that isn't just based on feel um, because. That, you know, I can imagine that's how this is. You know, you'd be able to feel if you're sort of losing losing thrust in on one of your wrists, type of thing. And the only other thing for me that I thought was interesting was around navigation. Um, so you you don't really know where you're going. You you've you've been you've had a phone call off of a casualty or somebody who's with a casualty. Um, a helicopter when it flies up there, you basically you've generally got at least three sets of eyes. You've got pilot, a co-pilot, and 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 a medic. Um, in the back, or even if you've just got two, that's still two pairs of eyes. Um, you'll, you'll have had a rough, um, presumably rough location, but then, as I said, the, the terrain tends can can be quite bleak. Um, and if you're in a closed in, as in the, 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 the fog's rolled in or the mist rolled in, um, normally on, in helicopter, you've at least got the ability to sort of slow down, take in your, take your bearings, slowly do searches across the terrain until you find your casualty. I don't think you know where your casualty, pinpointed your casualty is straight away. So your 90 seconds suddenly becomes way more than that. Um, so if you're not getting there straight away and you run out of flight time, how, how does that work? Now, there is solutions to that. So I guess the, you know, I don't know whether you, I presume you have in the States, the, the new what three words. Yeah. Uh, App. So if you if you got what three words that takes you down to a to a three meter squ- uh, triangle, uh, so if that's built into the way it goes, then possibly that that's a way of helping it. But again, you're going to need some sort of display to be able to sort of uh, way uh, wayfind for you and and things right. like that. So there are stacks of I think, and I don't think any of this is insurmountable. This is just me being um, taking something that I'm very excited about and then breaking it down. So t- taking it out of my heart and putting it on, putting it in my head. And and doing the, the 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 analysis that you'd look at and go and but we, because my head normally takes all the fun out of everything, um, and start thinking about the what ifs and and you know you, if we were to sit there and do a proper um, you know why why analysis and all that sort of stuff and and break this thing down then I'm sure we can come up with lots of solutions to all of it but I think this is one that sort of thinking is why I feel it is still a bit of a fad there's yeah. still a lot of work to be done. I mean, honestly, we're working right now. We're we're trying to break this down from a practical standpoint of like, what are some of the challenges that they might mm. experience here? And that was a really good overview of just the physical piece that is going on here too, right? I mean, we, we talked about some of the usability issues with the Jetpack, and I think we we recapped a lot of the stuff that we talked about last week <clears throat> for, for more in-depth discussion. Go listen to that. But, but honestly, there's much more going on than just the physical aspects of these jetpacks, right? You have sort of um, the, the mental side of it going on from the paramedics perspective too. So not only are they uh, pairing this with some of their traditional job responsibilities, now they have this whole other type of 
thing that they have to manage in in navigating with a jetpack on. And so it's a different beast. And I thought it was a good idea for us to kind of go through and talk about some of the behavioral and human factors issues when it comes to first responders and look at it through the lens of this story um, and and pair it with all these issues that we talked about with a jetpack too. So, you know, first off, first and foremost, right, these, these public health and safety workers, they have a broad range of health and mental health consequences because of the work that they do, uh, either, you know, exposed to natural or human caused disasters or uh, anything like that. And one of the top things that you'll see out of any sort of first responder is depression. It's, it's so commonly reported uh, and rates of depression as well as severity um, kind of vary across studies, but there's a couple instances here where in a control study uh, of certified EMS professionals, depression was reported in 6.8 with mild depression, um, which was the most common type. And then uh, you also have medical team workers who are responding to the Great East Japan earthquake back in 2011, where 21.4% of them were diagnosed with clinical depression. So it kind of ranges, but this is a very prevalent issue in which you have to consider. And when you, we'll, we'll get into the human factors uh, sort of implications here in a little bit, but obviously, as we talked about in previous episodes, mental health has a huge impact on your performance and your stress levels when you are trying to perform um, certain duties. And we'll get to performance and all that stuff, safety later. Um, you want to talk a little bit about suicide? Not really, but um, but but this is an obvious uh, next step because the, I mean, you're right. You when you look at the the whole depression side of things, it's no wonder when you consider the job that they're having to do, you know, and they see people at their best, but also see people at their you know most vulnerable, um, and at the worst when when thing you know things don't go right. So it's it's almost then no wonder that actually suicide ideation has been reported in first responders in a number of studies. Um, but there's still there are still questions around, around the rates, given the way data has been collected. Um, but existing research does suggest that um, emergency medical um, responders personnel may be more likely than the general population to think about and attempt suicide. So there has been a literature review where suicide uh, thoughts and ideation in EMS and paramedics were evaluated as compared to the general population. Um, and that, based on the findings from the study, a lifetime prevalence rate of 28% for feeling that life is not worth living. 10.4% for serious suicide ideation, 3.1% for having actually had a past suicide attempt. So it is um, it is one of these things that obviously we don't want to focus on necessarily too much in overplay, but the the environment that they work in and um, the, the things they see and have to put up with and the consequences because it not all of these trips uh, end up in a happy ending um right. and it's it's they it's them that have to process that and in many ways you, you see it on a lot of programs where um they almost think it's that scoop and run thing is they bring people into the hospital and they often don't necessarily know what the outcome was um until either much later if if they do at all so you know it's it's having to process one after the other and then get ready for the next for the, for the next one yeah on and, that and point they also hf issues <laughs> yeah well there, there's obviously overlap between mental health and and human factors issues and i think one thing that this really uh this overlap really fits nicely in is kind of this stress and post-traumatic stress 
so, I mean, if you think about some of these stress symptoms or PTSD symptoms that EMS personnel have reported, there's a number of studies that when you look at what they're experiencing, right? So if you look at uh, another lit review here, EMS and paramedics reported higher um, traumatic disassociation at the time of the Loma Prieta Bay Area earthquake in 1989 compared to uh, police. So, you know, even just looking at the differences between first responders, you also have a study in Germany where 16.8% of emergency physicians had probable PTSD. And then you have you know, a case control study among EMS professionals where stress was reported in 6%, where mild stress being the most common type. So even though it's mild, even though it's only in 6%, you're still introducing all these different factors into sort of uh, the normal, I guess, everyday lives of these professionals. And one thing to consider is that they take it home with them, first off, and that can be really, really bad for home relationships, um, especially when you consider PTSD. And bringing it now back to the human factor side of things, when you consider stress, PTSD on the job, those can be huge performance uh, sort of hits, right? If you're bringing stress, you're bringing PTSD, those can have a huge impact on on performance. What about performance, Barry? Well, performance in this field is is significant, isn't it? Because it's it is literally life and death. Um, you know, they, they've got very um, high levels of performance and the need to repeat time and time and time again. So one of the core risk factors is the pace of their work. Uh, the first responders are always on the front line facing highly stressful and risky calls. Um, but that tempo, that always being always on and having to do it time and time again can lead to an inability to integrate work experiences. So again, according to a study, uh, 69% of EMS professionals have never had enough time to recover between traumatic events. So therefore, as a result of that, depression, stress, and post-mortem PTSD, uh, suicide ideation, and a host of other functional relational conditions have been reported. So what we need to look at here is, is understanding how is this, how is everything that we're doing here then going to relate back to um, them actually being able to do the job? And being able to do it, what what does a good performance look like? We see it in hospitals as well, where you know you, you have doctors and surgeons working on, um, you know, working on patients when they're you know being on 12, 14 hour shifts, um, but yet we still expect a high level of performance out of them. Right. So, yeah, do we and, want to move on to risk and protective factors. Well, one one sort of really important thing here too with the tempo, right? This is critically important when you when you think about what we're trying to accomplish with this jetpack story, right? We're trying to get to them quicker and thus reducing the amount of time it takes to respond. And so we have to consider this when training these individuals or, you know, setting them up to respond to some of these situations, you need to increase the distance temporally between the time that they pick somebody up and the time that they go out to do it again. Because already, if you're looking at sort of this, um, you know, not having enough time to recover between events and you're making it faster, uh, you really need to slow it down and, and have somebody else do it. And that's, you know, you need to train a lot of people to do it. So that way you can trade off uh, the responsibilities. But yeah, let's talk about risk and protective factors. And, and specifically during some of these disastrous events, this is more of sort of a, a broad overview. 
you're probably not going to have, hopefully, knock on wood, not going to have disastrous natural disasters or human man-made disasters in the Lakes District. But if this technology starts, you know, expanding outside of it, this could be uh, something to consider. So you have risk factors during these disastrous events for first responders, um, and they could be either related to the disaster or the event itself, right? Any any one of these things could cause stress, post-traumatic stress, any of these things, inc- impact on performance. So if you think, if you take another lit review, we're bringing a lot of lit reviews here. We've done our research today. Uh, you, you have sort of these psychological outcomes from these stressful events. You have stress, uh, general well-being, mental disorders, resilience, personal growth, um, all affected when, you know, considering these humanita- humanitarian aid workers or similar professionals who are deployed to af- uh, to assist with the aftermath of a disaster. Um, and what they found is that the proximity to that epicenter of the disaster is associated with higher levels of mental health issues. So if you have a jetpack and you're able to get to that center, the epicenter of the disaster first, uh, you, you there might be some additional considerations that you have to make there for these professionals who are operating in that manner. Likewise, there's other studies here that when you work long hours in unfamiliar or demanding circumstances, not taking a day off each week uh, led to surprise, fatigue, mental distress, job dissatisfaction, and subjective health complaints. So again, when you have sort of these humanitarian crises where you need people to go out, perform duties in situations that are not normal, you're you're going to have some additional demands there to think about. Then you also have, uh, I guess, the somewhat obvious and tragic dealing with serious injuries or bodies of people um, resulting in sort of this this higher probability of de- developing PTSD, depression, alcohol uh, problems, all this stuff, anxiety. Um do you want to talk a little bit about some of the job duties or qualities during these events? Yeah, so during the a disaster um, or an event, then the job qualities or, or qualities during it were associated with elevated risks of mental health issues. So not having enough job-related information, um, added extra or unfamiliar or conflicting duties onto two or basically too many people to look after and supervise direct survivor or family contacts, longer assignments, longer time working with children, working with clients who basically discussing morbid materials, excessive exposure to gory sights and sounds, environmental hazards, and working as mental health workers, all of that associated with increased skill levels. Then you bring into that um, poor leadership, uh, lack of interagency agreement. They're, They're all seen as additional stressors during a disaster period. And so that gives you low perceived safety. Um, so, sorry, low perceived safety is also associated with increased levels of depression and anxiety and other um, psychiatric symptoms. Yeah, and the last the last piece here is kind of leadership, right? Or or lack of direction during these events, um, and and so that sort of leads to safety too, because if you don't have leadership, you don't have um, sort of this perceived safety of having somebody who knows what they're doing. And because of that, you're kind of increasing the levels of depression, anxiety, and other psychiatric symptoms. But when you don't have that safety, when you don't have leadership, that is critical for when you're operating in these type of high-risk environments because safety is everything. Uh, Mm -hmm. It could lead to potentially more death, right? What if you 
slip up and accidentally burn your victim with your jetpack on. I, it's a lot to consider. And, you know, there are some things after a disaster too. like all this, all this stuff that we talk about is really, you're going to take this home with you. Um, and so the more that we can do to help train these individuals or establish processes, procedures in place that will help reduce some of these mental health issues with first responders that will help with the usability of the jetpack. Even if something's easier to use, they're going to be less stressed doing it because they'll feel confident doing it. All this together kind of paints the picture of this very complex issue of giving paramedics jetpacks. Now let's kind of bring it back to the article. Barry, I want to make sure that we have some time to hit some closing thoughts because we Mm -hmm. did have a lot of thoughts on this. So what are some (laughs) things that you want to take away from this? So I guess there's a little, I, I sort of painted a bit of context about the, the train and stuff that this thing's got to work in. <clears throat> but the, we've also got to think about the, you know, how the, the context that this has been running. So the, the trials on this started in September 2020, but obviously COVID as with everything took the joy out of everything. Um, and they've also had difficulty fight, fighting, uh, finding sponsors to cover the cost. Now that's really important because in the UK, air ambulances are all charities. Um, they're not run as part of the National Health Service or anything like that. And so they're all funded by donations. Now, if you think about how much that costs and the advantage it gives you, et cetera, et cetera, the, running this as a trial is going to use up that, them funds um, on, on this. So how are we going to um, justify that cost to people who, who are giving to the charity? Um, so far, one member of the Great North Air Ambulance has completed their training using the suit unassisted, and, and they're going to get a couple of more on board. And it will give you, as we mentioned earlier, quite a significant um, performance um, increase. So if we talk about, you know, in, just in terms of being able to reach a, a casualty, um, they're going to be up towards that casualty in 90 seconds rather than that 30 minutes. Fantastic. Um but I sort of, in another part of the article, I thought there was a bit of a sort of concerning quote where they say it's, it's a machine that's attached to your body. You have to find the balance point. And we're in a job where we challenge ourselves. There's a lot of pressure on us to make it work, but it has a real purpose to get to people who need urgent medical care. It'd be lovely to enjoy it, but we have a job to do at the end of the day. Now, I have a problem with that quote because it feels like they're, they're being told that you have to make this work, otherwise people are going to die. Right. And are we trying to force a technology that may or may... It, it, on the face of it, it could be brilliant, as we talked about. We talked about two, two hours last week. We think it, we're all fan of jet suits. But when we're forcing a, a solution like this, this is when accidents happen. Um, this is when seri- we could have some serious consequences. So... That for me is 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 not only just waving a red flag. I've got two red red flags in each arm and two red flares going off. Right, right. That, um, that 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 concerns me. But only what about you, Nick? What 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 are your sort of takeaways? Well, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. This this to me feels more like oh, we have a technology. Let's use it. In fact, I'm going to pull up a quote here from the Great North Air Ambulance uh, Director, who has uh, completed this training himself. We're still awestruck by it. Everyone looks at the wow factor and the fact that we are the world's first jet suit paramedics. But for us, it's about delivering patient care. When I started as a paramedic, I never thought I'd be working with a helicopter. Never mind this. So, I mean, if you think about that, to me, it sounds like they are more impressed by the technology and the pairing of it with paramedics than they are concerned I'm not saying the goal, obviously, is to save people's lives. I'm not saying that it's 
ill-intentioned. I'm saying that I think maybe um, the way that we're talking about it needs to shift ever so slightly into, uh, yes, it will save lives, but we also have to consider at what cost. And really kind of the the last bit for me um, is just that this is going to be, if if this ultimately comes out of trial and this is, becomes the norm, at least in this district, you know others will follow suit. And so I feel like this is the opportunity to get best practices, processes, procedures in place before you start doing it at scale, because there's going to be a lot of lessons learned and a lot of human factors issues and safety issues, especially if we don't learn those lessons early on. I think what you're saying there is that there needs to maybe be some human factors involvement um, at this early stage of making sure you're running trials and, and highlighting those issues through maybe a good you know, human factors assessment, a bit of human factors integration, maybe. Is, is, is that what you're hinting at? Yeah. And, and you do consulting, right? I, I Well, I'm sure we both could do a really good job on this, right? <laughs> yeah, we just gave them a bunch of ideas. Well, thank you, to, <laughs> thank you to our patrons this week for selecting our topic, and thank you to our friends over at the BBC for our news story this week. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more discussion on these stories and more. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors cast network is 100% listener-supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you. Huge thank you, as always, uh, to our patrons. Especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Patrons like you keep the show running. Thank you so much for your continued support. Okay, I know most of you will skip over this part. I keep mentioning this because now we have advanced analytics, and I can tell when you're skipping. So I'm going to say don't skip here because this is really important. This is really cool. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about our lab and what we do, because we get a lot of questions about this, actually, uh, from folks who are interested in learning more about the lab or just curious what we're doing. You know, one thing that I don't think is immediately obvious is that we're not always putting stuff out into the world. And so people are wondering, what y'all doing over there in that lab? Um, we have a lot of different things that we're tracking and um, trying to accomplish over here at the lab that you don't see. And one thing that I want to mention is that kind of our mission, if you will, is to kind of provide solutions to communicating human factors principles in an easily digestible way. And the podcast is one of those, and it's certainly born out of that. Uh, but, you know, it is one of those passion projects for me because traditionally, and I'm not pointing any fingers here, human factors has been communicated by old, crusty white dudes. And you know what? I have a problem with that because, okay, I'm not talking about you. I said I'm not pointing figures, fingers. But look, here's the thing. It's like there's sort of this rift 
almost between academia and industry. And I want to bridge that rift. I want academia to see industry as a serious thing. I want industry to respect what academia has done to pave the way for some of this research. And so I don't think they always see eye to eye trying to bridge that gap, build a community of like-minded individuals who share a passion of human factors. And to do that, we're really experimenting with different formats behind the scenes here. We have podcasts, we have blog articles, we have other types of content that we're putting out there into the world to communicate these things effectively. And, you know, one of our goals is to really reach people where they are. If you've ever seen a YouTube video pop up that's adjacent to the thing that you're looking on, you know, and it says human factors cast, how do how giving paramedic jetpacks can stop people from dying. That's what we want to do. We want to pop up in those recommendations as a way to say, look, you enjoy this stuff. What's human factors? Because a lot of people don't know what that is. Um, it is truly a confluence of many different things. We want to get behind it. And so, you know, there are a lot of perks for being in the lab. Obviously, it'll give you experience working on stuff, build up a portfolio of demonstrable uh, results for things like university applications, future work in industry, that type of thing. You also get to work with some of the industry standard tools that we're using behind the scenes here. We have a lot of really experienced folks in the lab uh, that can mentor you and help you connect with networks. So that's another benefit there. And um, you know what? We have a roadmap for benefits. So just if you're thinking about it at all, maybe consider reaching out to us. We'd love to have you. We're always looking for passionate people who want to communicate human factors. Anyway, that's my spiel. Uh, I think it's time that we get into this next part of the show we like to call It Came From It Came From That's right. It Came From uh, This is where we search all over the community to find you topics that the community is talking about. If you find any of these answers useful, no matter where you're at, uh, please, please give us a like wherever you're watching, help other people find this content. So we have three questions today. They're all from Reddit. They're all from the user experience subreddit, which has been on a roll lately with some of these really good questions. This first one here is by Heriko Rico. I hope I said that right. Uh, they say, how, how do I kindly push back on a suggestion made by a developer? I'm new to the organization, so I'm still building relationships. The default design can't be done due to technical and time constraints, so the development team suggested an alternative, which is functional but isn't great from an experienced design perspective. How do I push back while still keeping the working relationship positive, if that makes sense? Barry, I'm I'm sure you've never encountered this in your life. No, I, I, in fact, I've got no idea. <laughs> yeah, if only. Um, I mean, I think this is business as usual for any human factors UX practitioner, really, isn't it? The, the dev will always there is always going to be a and i think it's actually quite a healthy thing a positive tension between everything that the, the design that we want to ha want to achieve in the design we want everything that we possibly can to um work for the user and, and that's why we exist the dev wants to get the um the code written in the in the best possible way in the most efficient way and to make it work from from their perspective and and the best comes out of that um that healthy tension between the two so whenever you meet a new dev, it's always difficult um, because for, I would say, a good chunk of organizations, the devs still are given probably more respect than us as HR practitioners or UX practitioners. And so they they tend to carry a bit more weight behind behind their opinions. Um, not everywhere. And some, I dare say, uh, some places are different, but certainly in my experience is that that is the case. 
but all you can do is is do what we do which is put forward the argument um put forward your proposal and why um you don't have to do it in an antagonistic way you don't need baseball bats or anything it is literally just a you know put forward your reasoning um if you've done your um done the research or the research exists um you you should have the evidence behind you to to say why you're proposing what you uh, why you why you're proposing what you're proposing or why their their uh, their proposal isn't going to work normally if you're just going to say oh, that's rubbish it's not going to work that generally won't float very well you need to come up with a counter proposal um so just just saying that's not going to work i find doesn't get very far that doesn't work but if you tweaked it and did this um tends to get a better reception so I, I, th I think you can do all that in a positive way. You don't have to be nasty about it. I don't think you, you have to uh, uh, do any of that. If, if you come forward, in, basically be proactive about what you're delivering, but don't be too subservient either. You're equally as important in that relationship as what they are. So um, just because you're new to the organization doesn't mean that you um, that you shouldn't put, put, your, uh, put your opinion forward. What do you think, Nick? How do you deal with this one? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there's a couple really important considerations here. So one, they say it's not able to be done because of technical and time constraints. And one piece of advice that I would offer in this situation is pick your battles. Is this going to be something that is going to have a negative impact on the user? If not, is it really that important? And I know that is kind of counterintuitive to what we as human factors practitioners are wanting to do. Um, but I think it's important to consider because especially if you don't have the clout in the UX, uh, in UX in the company, that is something to consider. Is it going to be mission critical that they get this right or can it slide? You say it's functional. It isn't great from a user experience design perspective, but it's functional. Is, is there another battle that you want to pick? That's a better, you know, thing to pick. So I'm going to argue that you might not even want to push back in this case is it really important i mean try say hey look i really think it should be like this if the, you know like is there any way we can make it work obviously push back but don't be so pushy that like i don't know it does develop that that friction between you and somebody that you'll potentially work with for a while that's my two cents all right let's get into this next one here um this one's advice for conducting asynchronous activities by Jen Piggy on the user experience subreddit. At my company, our project design team wants to conduct a journey mapping workshop and include people outside of our team as well. So this is like clients, stakeholders, et cetera. But because we're in different countries, time zones are hard to deal with. Any advice on asynchronous workshops or asynchronous workshopping that still gets everyone on the same page? Barry, do you have any experience with this Yes, um, not so much because of time zones, but because of uh, different organisations and, and basically access to access to uh, a user community that um, isn't always around. Um, fundamentally, it's about good organisation and and having software that is common across everybody and you can access. So for us, when I've done this before, I, I've done it in two levels, which is actually. Um, works with with something that was going off around twitter today around, around the around the use of powerpoint and and slides so if you put a if you basically put the the journey map through a set of um slides you google powerpoint microsoft whatever choose your poison um but then make that available on a network with um a header slide that 
exactly de uh, depict what it is you want your um, the the other stakeholders to do on that journey and the time period that they've got to do it. So basically, a good instruction slide. Um, give everybody a way of annotating themselves. So if you want to track that sort of thing, I've, I've done it both ways where one, when one project I did and one project I actually wanted anonymous, but get people to write it in, in you know, whatever they're adding in different colors so you can track, track the evolution. And over, a, say, a 72-hour period or whatever, whatever time zone, uh, time period you're using, um, give them that time period to do it. Then at the end um, of the time period, so say it's 24 hours, um, at the end of the 24 hours, you then go back and review it and come up with a consolidated set um, of comments to allow you then to go, go through another cycle. It's, it's slow um, or slower. You don't get the the interaction between people like you would in a face-to-face in a -face workshop. There are things you can do around that, around, you know, I've seen suggestions about recording voice notes, about recording bits of video to maybe do some of your um, to to explore some of your rationale and things like that. They they don't tend to work out in in my experience. Other people might find them uh, better. Um, the best thing I found is actually just leaving um, comments in the PowerPoint slide. So when you do it, when you normally do a review, use that use the review comments to add notes in for your justifications if you if you feel that's that that fits um i just find that most people don't watch bits of video and, and listen to it uh, but that might just be the domain that i work in yeah. so uh, that that's kind of it from in, in terms of it, it's it's a longer more drawn out process you have to be on top of your admin to make it work um because everybody has to have a fair crack at the whip everybody has to know what they're doing without you being able to be there in person briefing them about it so if you get your admin right it can work and and yes uh, make it so but just get your admin up, up to scratch nick what, what about you do have you got experience in doing this no i'm curious this was this was one of those ones that i picked out of genuine curiosity there's um you know i i have a need to do asynchronous work uh, and, you know, there's there's the traditional sort of uh, asynchronous user tools for things like usability studies, all that stuff. Like I can name a couple names, but I think the interesting thing to me is, yes, you're right. Th this requires a lot of setup. And I just do want to stress that the setup is probably the most important part here, because doing the thing that you just said, setting up in in you know, very clear instructions. How do you make sure people read those instructions is another question. But if you have the you know idea there, are, at least you could attend um, like a, 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 the start of each of these things. You could get people going. I don't know. There's There's got to be ways out there. If you know, let us know. All right. This last one here. Is it a red flag to anyone else if a company says they tend to have one week turnarounds for research? This is by Poor Poof on the user experience subreddit. Hiya, I'm a senior UX researcher and I sat down for a panel interview for a position where I would essentially be building up the research department from the ground up with a lot of focus on discovery, exploratory research. A lead researcher from another group owned by the company asked what I would do if I had a week to conduct research. And I answered honestly with uh, good research takes time. They didn't like that answer at all. I'm already employed, so I'm not worried if I get the job or not. But I just want to check in to see I'm not crazy for suggesting more time for research. Barry, is one week enough time? No. Nope. There we go. Um, again, okay. We, we need it. It depends button. Um, really if you, yeah, if if we've got things lined up, so you have a user pool, you've got you know things are planned out or things are, are easy to access and and put in front of a user community. You don't have to do all of the 
because the stuff that takes time is recruiting your user pool is, is generating the prototypes that are in in a fit state to engage with or if you're you know you're doing your more basic research that because you just say it's, it's more generative research you know to be able to go and do that sort of research there's a there is organization that it and you to deliver that in five days is incredibly difficult um so i think fair play um go back and yes ask for the um um that ask for that ask for them questions and and see what you get if they're not willing to play then really how comfortable do you feel about that job is that some people would see that and i've, I've worked with people, some people who see that as a challenge um and let's say yeah i like the fast pace of that um and maybe yeah. you could develop processes but yeah i think that's a bit tight two weeks i think would be and I'd, I'd be i'd be playing with but i think a week is yeah it, it also depends on the scope right the default time of research i say is two months and that is by design if if you are looking for a scope on a big project i say two months because that gives me time to talk to you to organize meetings uh to come up with some of these uh, requirements for research and then actually talk to the people that need to participate in the research organize all those times it, it really depends on scope are you doing user interviews or are you doing a survey it's very different do you have a user base or not um and so you know i think a week is way too quick that's my two cents i don't really feel like adding more to this it just it feels way too quick what are you going to do monday you set up the study tuesday you like send it out wednesday you get some back thursday you analyze and friday you present that is way too like it just seems way too accelerated to me there is an interesting bit in there that you've actually just the way you just done that out uh, made me think google actually have um their google the google agile approach they have a five-day sprint process that they detail on a day-by-day basis what you should do. It's not directly uh, generative research, but it is maybe something that could be applied in this situation. I don't right. know. I'd have to go look at the book again. But but I mean, you could you could even take that five-week ag- or five-day agile thing and plan it out like one week planning, second week recruiting, third week executing, fourth week analysis, fifth week. Like that is to me what a more standard cycle is. Agreed. Maybe I'm on school. I don't know. Let's hear from you all. Uh, all right, I'm I'm tired to talk about this. Let's get into one more thing. <laughs> <laughs> one more thing. It's just where we talk about whatever. Barry, what is going on with you? So this week, I, I'm just going to highlight the fact I, we mentioned a while ago. I was going to get a new electric car. I was all very excited and all that sort of stuff. And it was coming like a couple of weeks ago. Well, a couple of weeks have gone by. I still haven't got it. Turns out I'm not going to get that car after all. Um, because when they promised me that I was going to get such such a car, which I was very excited about, they've now run out of them. And I'm not. If I kept with that, I wouldn't get it till January. Mm. Uh, so we've we've done uh, done a bit of a bait and switch, and I'm hopefully going to get a car in I think about six weeks time, uh, which I'm going to go. I'm getting the new Ford Mustang. So oh. I'm very excited. So the the most Mustang Mackey. Um, so I'm quite excited about that. But I'm now not holding my breath because it, I will. I kind of get feel I might get disappointed later on. So I thought I'd just have a little moan about that around the fact I'm not getting the car I wanted. But I am going to. I'm hopefully going to get a Mustang, which is actually quite exciting. Yeah. Well, hopefully you have a couple backups just in case the Mustang doesn't work out. Yeah, we'll see. I might just <laughs> go back to the first one and wait till January for it. Cause, um, yeah. At that point, right? What about? Uh, for me, uh, we're getting organized over here at the lab. I mentioned it during the break, uh, or d- coming back from the break. There was um, sort of a lack of effectiveness uh, with the pills this week, and um, you know, it, it led to some hyperfixation on my part. And through that, 
uh, resulted some productivity and some late nights, but it, it worked out in my benefit. So it's weird because normally um, hyperfixation occurs when I am sitting at my desk and like carving up uh, old water bottles with my exacto knife that I have here. Uh, like that is that is what it usually results in. But this time it was kind of more dedicated towards actually being productive. And that was nice. Anyway, journey's nonlinear. <laughs> That's going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, since we talk so much about the mental health of first responders today, you can I'll encourage you all to go listen to episode 236. We talk about how we can better define mental health. Why don't you go ahead and give us a comment wherever you're listening on what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. We're always chatting in there. Visit our official website. Sign up for our newsletter. Stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, leave us a five-star review. That is free for you to do. And I think right now, if you go to Podchaser uh, and leave us a review there, they'll donate 25 cents for every review left to the efforts in Ukraine. So go do that. You can always tell your friends about us. Uh, and that is also free for you to do. Just let them know that you listen to the show and that it's a good thing. Uh, or three, if you have money and want to give us money to support the lab, uh, you can always support us on Patreon. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about how they can be saved via Jetpack? You can find me on Twitter at Baz underscore K or any other socials. Also, you can um, hit up some of my interviews on 1202 uh, The Human Facts Podcast, which is at 1202podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.